0: 80, 80 people in this world who now own more wealth than the bottom 50% of the world's population, 3.5 billion people.
1: That is Bernie Sanders speaking in a Brooklyn church back in April, 2016. At the time he was actively campaigning to be the democratic nominee in that year's election for president of the United States. And this point that just a few people in the world are so extraordinarily wealthy that they hold as much wealth as the least wealthy half of the world's population. It was one of his key issues, but he, he says something in this speech that struck me as especially interesting.
0: So, in other words, I don't want to make this just political. I want you to go deeper into that. Go into the guts of our society and try to look at things from a moral perspective.
1: A moral perspective. Which is a little odd, right? Because economic issues don't always seem like moral issues. Like sure, things like civil rights or climate action or stem cell research, they seem like bread and butter moral issues but economic policy usually feels like, uh, I don't know, but (laughs) but certainly not a pressing moral dilemma. So what does it matter that Bernie is encouraging people to see this issue as a moral one? Does that make sense strategically? When I was in grad school, I ran a few experiments kind of like this. I would take an issue, like recycling, that a bunch of people already agree is good, and then I would present people with arguments that, might persuade them to abandon their original opinion or or at least start to question whether recycling really was as good as they thought it was. But before I gave them those arguments, I encouraged some people to see their pro-recycling opinions as a product of their moral beliefs. In other words, I nudged them to moralize their opinion of recycling, just like Bernie Sanders was nudging people to moralize their opinions of wealth inequality. Okay, so when people got those arguments against recycling programs, we checked in on their attitudes again, and we could see whose opinions had started to change. In our control group, the arguments were pretty convincing, actually. People were no longer as pro-recycling as they once were. But the people who were nudged to connect their opinion of recycling to their sense of moral right and wrong... They were not so convinced by our message. They got the same anti-recycling arguments as the other group, but they were less likely to budge. And when I saw these results, it seemed to make two important points. First, morality is malleable. There aren't moral issues and non-moral issues. We could push people to moralize something that they might not have already thought about in that way, like Bernie Sanders did with wealth inequality. And second, morality seems to make us hold on more tightly to our views. If it feels like an opinion is tied to our moral compass, good luck trying to get us to change our mind. Especially if you ignore the fact that we're grounding this opinion in ethical concerns. Cause like, sure, maybe recycling is expensive and inefficient, but it's just the right thing to do, gosh darn it. Maybe Bernie supporters, by tying his platform to their sense of moral right and wrong, ended up even more committed to the cause. Now, I'd be lying if I said the idea for these experiments occurred to me out of the blue. In part, they were extending psychological research that already existed on what are called moral convictions. And that research owes a lot to our guest today. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. Or how they don't. <laughs> I'm Andy Latrell, and this week I get to talk to Dr. Linda Skitka. She's a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and one of the key contributions she's made to social psychology is the notion of moral convictions. It's the idea that there's no such thing as a moral issue, but that any opinion could be one that people see as rooted in their moral beliefs. Over the years, she and her colleagues have shown over and over again that moral convictions act differently than other kinds of opinions. And as you may have figured out from my intro, this is a topic I am super interested in. In fact, this episode of Opinion Science is unique in that the research that I do in my academic life overlaps a lot with Linda's. I've been super interested in just how strong our moralized opinions really are, and whether there might even be times when moral opinions can change. So despite a few differences in how we approach studying these questions, at the end of the day, we're interested in the same sorts of things. All of this means that I was excited to talk shop with Linda, so uh, sorry if we get into the weeds more than usual for this show, but I-, I think you'll find our conversation interesting. Oh, um, one other thing. For a few reasons, we decided to switch Linda's mic input partway through the interview, so don't be alarmed when her audio suddenly sounds different. I know, you were going to be alarmed, so just uh, don't be. <laughs> Alright, l- let's get into my chat with Linda Skidka. So we can sort of do back and forth and naturally there are things we might have different views on based on the way that we've approached the same questions or just expanding on how we've done things. Um, But I will otherwise treat this, I mean, this is, you, you brought this notion into the world and so I'm interested in getting your take as someone who's seen the evolution of this over time, having looked at, you know, it occurred to me that the first paper really, I mean, the first major one was 2005, even though there were inklings of it in the years prior to that.
0: Yeah. Probably the very first publication. Well, well, we can, I don't know yeah. how, when <laughs> you want to start the conversation, but where, um, this work started for me was in the procedural and distributive justice debates and when procedures versus outcomes are going to matter more to people's judgments of fairness and an argument with Tom Tyler. Um, he w- he argues that if people perceived the Supreme court to be sufficiently legitimate, they would have accepted the Roe v. Wade decision. And, but the le- legitimacy of the Supreme Court at that time was, you know, like enormously high. And, and, um, and, you know, by then, some 50 years of debate about the legal status of abortion. Now, well, actually, by the time I started doing this work, it was only about 30 years. And so I was thinking about that as um, moral convictions as a boundary condition on when people think, when procedures are sufficient for people to judge whether something's fair or not. But then, of course, reviewers wanted to say, well, what the hell is this moral conviction thing? <laughs>
1: yeah I, we, we might as well start here, so like the the idea was that, as you're saying, there was sort of a perceived legitimacy of somebody, but also this like unwillingness to accept what that agency had done or decided or whatever. And so, based on the perspective that you brought to it, what were you thinking was at the root of why people were kind of denying the the legitimacy of a decision made by an institution that they otherwise saw as legitimate?
0: Right. You know, there there were at that point in time there'd been about twenty years of research that had actually established that people will generally accept unfavorable outcomes if they perceive the legitimacy of the procedures that decides them as 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 fair and legitimate. Um, even when those outcomes are negative to what, what their preferences are. But what was always being operationalized there was people's um judgments of favorability or unfavorability of an outcome, largely to their to their self interest. And that's only one layer, right? That sometimes we have moral connections to some of our attitudes that we think that those particular attitudes are not just favorable or unfavorable, or do or do not serve our self interest that they serve some higher order moral cause. And um, my assumption was that at least a good number of people saw abortion in that light. Um, And the degree to which they had strong moral convictions about um, whether abortion should or should not be legal, would be more likely to determine their judgments of whether even otherwise legitimate institutions and procedures were getting the issue right. And then We did do about a dozen studies that Mm -hmm. actually showed that the degree to which people had moral convictions about outcomes um, was an important boundary condition on what was otherwise known as the fair process effect.
1: So I I know I'm asking you to introspect about something that occurred to you 20 years ago, but like (laughs) what? Do you remember kind of like where that insight came from, that this was about morality somehow, that like people had attached a sense of moral right and wrong, and that was the thing, you know, apart from all the other things that would matter to the way people engage with their opinions and institutions, that it's this sense of morality that's at the root of it?
0: It really was the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, why were people still arguing about it you know, after, after decades? And what made it special compared to other Supreme Court decisions? Hmm. And the scene that really really seems to distinguish that particular decision relative to other Supreme Court decisions was the degree to which people had, you know, were using words like murder and evil and mm. morally loaded terms around that particular issue. And also their unwavering commitment to their positions on that issue, irrespective of what legal authorities had to say about the matter.
1: Yeah, that seems to be a hallmark that, that when morality gets wrapped up in opinions, those opinions get pretty rigid and and unwilling to to change. And so, I mean, just to even jump into it, like, why? (laughs) What, What is so special about morality, right? Like, why should this be the kind of thing that carries so much weight when people bring it into these kinds of debates?
0: Well, once we found that it was an important boundary condition on whether people thought legal policies or institutional decisions were fair... Um, we decided to take a very um, bottom-up approach to, to figure out exactly what made these kinds of attitudes special. So unlike other kinds of theories of morality, such as moral foundations theory that really basically define the moral sphere and then go out and collect data to see if it's consistent with that definition, we instead decided to um, measure moral convictions and find out what predicts them or what consequences they had that were relatively unique to them that couldn't be explained by other variables. And so let the data inform what made them special, as opposed to starting from moral philosophy or psychological Mm -hmm. theory or anthropology, which most other researchers had done. And so over the years, we found a, a whole bunch of distinguishing characteristics that seem to make attitudes that are held with moral conviction different from otherwise strong, but not moral attitudes. Probably one of the most important of which is authority independence, which is going back to that people rejecting the legitimacy, for example, of the Supreme Court or not relying on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court to decide whether whether something is fair or unfair. So then we've actually done studies in the context of Supreme decisions, such as the legal status of physician assisted suicide. Um, And when people had strong moral convictions about whether um, physician assisted suicide should be made legal or illegal, whether the court decided consistently with what their moral convictions were about that issue, predicted not only whether they thought the, the decision was ultimately fair and binding, but also affected their subsequent perceptions of the um, legitimacy of the Supreme Court. They saw the Supreme Court as more or less legitimate as a function of whether the court ruled consistently with their moral beliefs or inconsistently with them. So when do we turn to the courts? Um, We turn to the courts often when we don't know the right answer to something. Like we don't know um, whether the defendant is guilty or innocent. We don't know um, whose claim should have precedence in um, some kind of lawsuit or injury case. And we just have to trust that, okay, if the procedures are sufficiently fair, participants are given voice, um, there's an um, a um, unbiased review of the evidence, and so on, that the procedure, or the, the procedure will generally yield an answer that's correct. Hmm. Okay, but if we already know the hmm. right answer, hmm. I know this defendant is guilty, and I'm morally very sure of that, or I know what the right decision is to be made on, on abortion, then I can use that to judge whether the authorities are, in fact, legitimate. And so authority independence really is one of the key defining characteristics of moral convictions that we keep finding over and over again.
1: Meaning it doesn't matter what they say, <laughs> but I know yeah, what is right.
0: I already know. I mm-hmm. know the right answer to this one. And in fact, I'm, I'm deeply suspect of any procedure that doesn't come up with the right answer.
1: Hmm. So, so one of the things that I think about when I think about morally convicted anything, right? Like One of my uh, great frustrations as someone who came to study morality from outside of the moral psychology literature is how unclear it is to me what morality is supposed to be. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, in this case, sometimes I wonder, like, what can we just should we just throw out the word morality and be like, if we what we do is if what we think it is, is substituting this sense that like, this is objectively true, and I know it, like, couldn't we just ask that question? Like, you do you just think this is objectively true? Like, do, do we gain anything from saying, no, it's a moral thing that I think is true, and no one else could convince me otherwise?
0: Well, you're, you're suggesting some of the other features that we have found that empirically differentiate moral convictions from non-moral attitudes, and that is a sense of perceived objectivity or factuality to the attitude. Um, the problem is, though, that a whole bunch of other attitudes have that characteristic as well without the moral component, right? I know that two plus two equals four. That's objectively t- true. Or I know um, the, um, something objective about photosynthesis, but I don't have any particular moral attachment to that particular issue. So I don't think just asking about objectivity, I don't think it's going to get at the latent construct of moral conviction.
1: The, the, the thing I was thinking is in the context of these court decisions, right, if all of a sudden the Supreme Court came out and said, we believe uh, that gravity doesn't hold true, I'd be like, well... <laughs> That that erodes my trust in your ability to make the correct call later, right? In the same way that if you made the call that, you know, whatever my moral belief is, is not not true. Um, and so that's a case where I just go like, well, you'd make exactly the same predictions if this is just about, I believe this is objectively true, as opposed to this is something special about moral stuff. So even looking at the consequences, are there like, what are the other things that <laughs> moralized attitudes do that non-moralized attitudes don't do, right? Apart from just this, like, trust in institutions stuff.
0: Well, a variety of things that you also wouldn't necessarily attach um, to just attitudes that are uh, rooted in beliefs about factuality or objective truth. Um, in particular, the emotional signatures of moral convictions are something that you wouldn't predict if, some, if it was just based on something about, well, basically, I think you're describing attitude certainty in some ways, um, um, I wouldn't expect attitude certain certainty to necessarily have a highly motivational component to it. Um, yeah. that would predict intentions and behavior, um, necessarily in the same way. Like two plus two equals four. I can be very certain about that, um, and believe it to be objectively true, but it has no motivational component. I don't have to do anything about it. Whereas another signature of moral convictions is the degree to which they're tied with perceived obligations to act, that people see them as very obligatory, um, and, In the context of politics, it's a a very reliable, strong predictor of all kinds of political engagement, including um, intentions to vote, actual voting behavior, activism, um, charitable donations, and so forth, which I I wouldn't expect an attitude that's based on uh, black and white, right and wrong, to necessarily have this kind of action component um, along with it. Um, Although I, I agree that many of the other consequences of moral convictions might. For example, that people are really resistant to group influence when they have strong moral um, convictions about an outcome. Um, although, come think about Ash, the Ash paradigm in terms of asking people to object- objectively identify, um, you know the length of lines. That was a very objective decision, and people were willing to conform to the group, even when they knew they were objectively wrong. But people in a very similar kind of Ash paradigm will not modify their moral convictions; um, they, they persist. Under very
1: similar circumstances, hmm. yeah, that that is a great comparison, right? Because that's a case where you would go, we know that people will still succumb to these pressures, even when they think they're objectively right. But they go, yeah, but fine, I, I guess something's something's off. <laughs> I'll I'll still say that 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 line is the longer one or whatever. But not so if this is a thing that I think is morally true. Right? Exactly. I go, I don't care what you guys are saying. <laughs> I still am going to stick to my guns and say what I think is right.
0: Exactly. Um, and probably because there's no cost, really, to denying the truth value of the length of a line. Whereas I think that there would be um, some perceived personal cost about compromising on one's moralized positions, that would one would be feeling like they're uh, morally inauthentic, or perhaps not being their true selves, if they don't defend something they genuinely morally believe in.
1: Yeah, like m- morality just is sort of like all these features are kind of glued together <laughs> in this like kind of uh-huh, this system that that can't really be broken so easily, where there's this like self definingness there's this identity piece, there's this sense of obligation, there's this sense of factuality, it's kind of this
0: uh it's a this, yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say a constellation yeah of, of all these different pieces that get fused together into a sense of what is right and wrong, so you know I, I was thinking about the terminology that we use for this. I have definitely slipped into moralized attitudes. That has become kind of my preferred (laughs) moniker for this stuff. But over the years, you know, in reading the the stuff that you've done, these terms of moral convictions, moral mandates, moral imperatives, moralized attitudes, ultimately, as far as I understand, the construct has stayed relatively stable over time despite those labels. But is there any, like, what is your preference these days?
0: Um, I really like moral mandates because it allowed me to um, trim out a few words. When writing about it, that <laughs> seems held with moral conviction is a lot of words compared to a moral mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, but some political scientists yelled at me about it mm. um, in terms of they only um, think that that term should be restricted for when a Democratic um, supermajority endorses a particular candidate or idea, that that gives them a moral
1: mandate.
0: Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have tended to use moral conviction, but do I see any, any real distinction between that and the term moralized attitudes? I don't.
1: Yeah, because when you think about like, how do we know, like empirically, when you do the research on this, what is it that you do or say or ask to figure out what are the opinions people have that are moral convictions and what are the ones that are less morally convicted?
0: And with one small, you know, this may be splitting hairs, distinction, moralized attitude sounds like something about an attitude. It's about something that the perceiver holds about it, which has been Often, until the moral conviction construct really came up, that's how many researchers actually studied moralized attitudes, was that some attitudes were apparently, obviously moral. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, attitudes about most social issues, whereas other attitudes were, of course, not moral, such as people's positions on, on the economy, or um, in one study it was the Iraq War. And I'm just going, really? The <laughs> Iraq War doesn't have any moral component to it? And so, you know, the, I think there's an enormous tendency, even when people are reading the moral conviction literature, to think that what we're talking about is a property of, of the attitude object. You know, abortion is a moral issue, right? Um, gun control is a moral issue. When in fact, um, what we find is there's um, enormous individual vari- variability in the degree to which people see abortion, for example, as a personal moral conviction, not. You know, some people see their position on abortion as a matter of preference. Um, They would just simply prefer that abortion, for example, be legal. Um, Other people's position on abortion is rooted in um, beliefs about conventionality or what authorities have to say about the matter. Either this is what people in my my community tend to think about it, for example, my faith community, or this is what my religious leaders tell me is the right answer on this one, or this is what I believe the Bible has to say about it. That's an attitude that's also not rooted in moral moral convention um, in the same way that moral convictions as we have been studying them are which are, again, these kind of personal beliefs that I absolutely know the right answer in this particular circumstances, and I have strong attachments about right and wrong to that attitude. So, you know, it's probably um, slicing thin, but I've become very careful about trying to um, communicate to people that we're, we're talking about something that is in this um, eyes of the perceiver. It is not an essential character of some attitude domains.
1: And it brings up another point, which uh, that you've emphasized recently, which is that morality is a matter of degree, not a matter of kind, right? So so maybe some people would say like, oh, like you you pick, right? Is this opinion going to be a moral one for me or a not a moral one for me? Whereas w- would you argue that, that that's sort of misguided in some way?
0: Um, the me, not me part really is misguided. Um, that we have seen um, a variety of other researchers use basically that kind of dichotomous um, identification is moral, not moral. Um, for one thing, just asking people whether this issue is moral or not moral, um, you're going to get two kinds of responses to that. It is for me versus it is normatively perceived as moral in society. So that's a risk. Whereas um, I think when we're studying moral convictions, we're interested in that for you. Not do most people, but not you, think that this is a moral issue. So that's one risk. Um, and then there's some other work done um, by um, Jennifer Wright that found that. Ex- Measuring both pacification um, and strength of moral convictions both added um, unique variance to theoretically interesting outcomes. Um, and so you'd miss things that you would miss if you didn't have both.
1: Hmm. So so even two people who might both say this is uh, connects to my morality can still be different in how strongly they do that, and, and that's consequential. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is also useful to say that— It's not that there's a class of attitude topics (laughs) that are moral than those that aren't. Take, take your favorite topic of, (laughs) of debate. You're going to see like a whole bunch of people across the spectrum of moralizing this thing. Yeah.
0: Which is, I think also interesting in terms of um, explaining why we have um, so many disagreements about um, policy is that some people, some people are really looking at it through a very different lens than other people. Um, and which makes it, I think, it difficult to talk about sometimes our attitudes. Like, if one person here is taking a very strong moral stance on it, it may totally not get someone who's thinking about this from a very practical or um, a view of efficiency or or some other kind of view, that they're, they're going to completely talk past each other.
1: And <laughs> given what we know about people, it feels like, well, this is the only way to look at this thing, right? If, if I see this as moral, how could you see it as anything other than that? Um
0: Pretty much, because again, to the extent that you do perceive it as um, very moral, um, it is true to you as two plus two equals four. Um, And I think most people think that um, that means that they can very easily persuade other people who disagree with them. And that they're going to, I think they'll be reasonably open-minded until they actually do sit down and have an attempt to um, try to persuade somebody else to to share their point of view. Because I think we think, surely, if I explain the facts as I know them, you will come to see it as exactly the way that I do. It's only when that, that, becomes frustrated, and you're not successful, that you start having to really distance yourself from the other person and say, wow, I I don't know what kind of person you are.
1: (laughs) We are too different in too many ways. Like you can't see what's obvious in front of me. So I don't know what else you're not getting. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, one of the things too, when we were talking about we're sort of dwelling on like, what what is this morality thing anyway? And one of the, you know, different ways you could look at moral convictions is whether these are opinions that truly are actually born from moral reasoning versus we got to this moral place through some other routes. So, like, what what is your sense of, like, when people express on, on these questions on surveys, yes, to me, my uh, opinion on abortion is a result of my beliefs about right and wrong. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that really that was the process they used to get to their opinion or... Are they getting to the sense of right and wrong through some other direction?
0: I think it's really complicated. Um, And that's actually been the focus of our research in recent years, after trying to um, establish that moral convictions were a thing that was relatively unique and distinct from um, strong attitudes, and studying some of the consequences of having moral convictions. um, I've been in recent years turning my attention to how do attitudes become moralized in the first place. Um, And from moral theory, there's really two competing um, viewpoints on this. According to John Haidt's social intuitionist model, moral convictions should just be sudden intuitions. Um, you know gut feelings. I know in my gut that this is just wrong. And according to um, classic moral developmental theory, it should be solely the consequence of reasoning and thinking very carefully through um, the issue to arrive at a conclusion that um, harm has been done or something to arrive at a decision that is an attitude is a moral conviction. I'm of a mind that it's likely to be both. Both are either. Um, and Um Vegetarianism is, I think, a really interesting example to use to um, ponder this, um, which is something you might be interested in. Um, I think some people actually do have this visceral disgust at the idea of consuming the flesh of animals. That's gross. I just couldn't possibly do that. It's so obviously wrong to me. I, I, I'll just never consume meat. And it's interesting. A lot of children actually have that reaction. But I think there's also a completely different pathway to vegetarianism as a moral conviction, and that is um, being exposed to, for example, evidence about um, slaughter processes and um, that one may find um, morally objectionable or animal treatment and so on. You can think about some of the documentaries that have been around about meat processing plants and animal husbandry and that people look into that. They start doing a lot of research on it and really come to the conclusion that, no, this is morally wrong, and therefore I'm not going to consume consume meat. Those are completely different pathways, but um, are arriving um, at very similar outcomes. What I wonder, though, is if it's necessary to, um, if you go through the reason pathway, in order for it to stick, I wonder if you have to really recruit an emotional reaction as well, that you're going to have to bring some disgust or anger to it, Um, in order to cross that finish line into um, a
1: moral conviction yeah it's interesting yeah on a purely speculative level (laughs) as someone who uh, does sort of approach this notion of vegetarianism from a moral angle it's interesting because i feel like for me what brought me there initially was an emotional reaction right like suddenly you see these images in these videos of uh you know Uh, factory farms and you go, oh, man, this is terrible. But I actually like don't revisit those feelings all that often, right? It sort of resolved itself into what I think was probably the result of a reasoning process where I go like, yeah, this seems wrong, (laughs) this process that exists in the world. And, And that became like a guiding principle more so than, you know, I always what I would hear other vegetarian people be like, oh, I just find it so disgusting. And I go, man, I wish I did, because I don't like actually <laughs> I don't actually have that response, uh, uh-huh. and that might make it like especially easy to maintain and and maybe that's part of it, right? like different routes to morality might result in sort of differences in your ability to stick to the plan or the right. longevity, right? like you might arrive at that moralization through either of those routes, but it may be that emotional route, and we actually have some data that could suggest this, that sort of predict that that becomes a more lasting moral conviction which is interesting because it suggests that sometimes moral convictions can peter out if they're not sort of bolstered by these other processes i don't know does that does that sound kind of like what you're saying or or have i turned it around Um,
0: and because it is is interesting that the research indicates that um, people who do have a really strong commitment to vegetarianism um, tend to slip a lot and i think it's because it is hard to sustain well it's hard to sustain for a multitude of reasons, but, um you're bringing up kind of, I, I suspect, the hedonic value of consuming meat. Um, it tastes good. You put on top of that, you know, a normative um, setting and culture where everybody else is consuming meat. So you don't necessarily have the same kind of group norm of um, support. Um, nobody's probably going to shun you if you, you slip and um, eat meat. Um,
1: Nobody who eats meat will.
0: <laughs> but yeah, um, but it seems really feasible to me that it probably requires uh, eventually a co- combination of reasoning and affect. Um, but to some degree, it feels like the affect is the really necessary component somewhere in that process. And, and the data is bearing that out um, that we're finding um, in a number of, the study, number of studies that we're finding that um, emotional changes definitely predict changes in moral conviction. Most of the time, changes in perceptions of harms and benefits, for example, don't. You know, There's, there's some exceptions. But longitudinal studies and a variety of studies in the lab very consistent findings for emotional reactions being precursors there's some but not um, not very consistent evidence on perceptions of harm for example being a per- precursor and considerable evidence of perceptions of harm follow rather than precede moral convictions
1: and, and, and so all of these are predicting whether people are saying the degree to which people are saying this is moral for me uh, and sort of crazy that this information about harm and costs doesn't do that right or, or doesn't consistently do that um because I, I know that the, the notion that emotion is wrapped up in this i think has been around for a long time like since the inception of i think these moral convictions might matter uh there's oh, an assumption I mean,
0: that you know really debated the um competing roles of reason versus emotion and, and morality as well so yes these are really really old arguments
1: Mm -hmm. But but even for you, introducing this notion of moral conviction before the formal tests of the emotion component were there, it seemed like plausibly one of the things that's making these moral convictions differ from other kinds of opinions is the emotion that people bring to it. And so over time, I guess sort of the full scope of things to me, like this is one of the more back and forth aspects of the moral conviction (laughs) model of things is sort of exactly what do we know about what emotion is doing here? So if you could summarize, like, wh- what is emotion? Like, what is it doing <laughs> when it comes to morals?
0: It it's going to turn out to be a really big puzzle. Um, you know, we had theoretical reasons to really expect that disgust would be a precursor to um, moral convictions. And so um, so my lab um, really started there because there was strong theory and evidence from um, how people make um, moral judgments. That is how severely wrong they think a given act is, um, was really importantly predicted by disgust, Um, including disgust that was unrelated to the actual harm behavior. Um, So we did dozens of studies in our lab where we were um, making people feel disgusted. (laughs) You're so nice. (laughs) You know, we did have people up to their elbows and um, and Elmer's glue and gummy worms, (laughs) um, and then asking them questions under those conditions compared to feeling feathers and beads. And Hmm. Oh my gosh! We use fart spray. Do never, never use fart spray in your lab. You will not get it out of your upholstery. <laughs> we actually repainted because of it. Oh my gosh! <laughs> we discovered that you can buy pellets um, that o- that only activate a smell when um, when air is moving over them. And one of the pellet smells that you can get is dead rat versus yes. lion breeze. Okay. Um, <laughs> we did incidental um, arousal studies um, where we had people jump rope for a while, have a pause and then ask them their attitudes. We never, ever got changes in moral convictions about anything from any of those things, hmm. which is, again, at odds with the moral judgment literature.
1: Hmm. And again, just to be clear, these are all ways to get people into a certain state of emotion that have nothing to do with the issue, but right. just sort of, incidentally, I feel really gross <laughs> right now, or I feel really jacked up right now. None of those sort of incidental feelings seem to be spilling over into this is issue is moral or these issues are moral.
0: Yeah. Which, It may just have kind of a ha and and duh, um, (laughs) (laughs) which is that um, attitudes of people probably um, um, about which people have the potential to have moral convictions probably have an awful lot of stuff that goes along with them. Associations of memory, including probably affective associations of memory that probably are trumping whatever incidental arousal that we were subjecting people to in the lab. So that's when we decided to study um, and compare, okay, what to what degree that will incidental arousal of disgust versus integral disgust lead to moral conviction. Um, and what this means is we did studies where people were exposed to some disgust-evoking stimuli, some that were and were not related to the topic of abortion. So they were exposed to toilets overflowing with feces, um, you know, really gross stuff, no harm implicated in it. They were exposed to um, vivid images of mutilated animals that were bloody, um, but still non-human related harm. Okay, but they had harm and they were also disgusting. Hmm. Um, then in other conditions, they were exposed to um, photos of aborted fetuses. And all this was done in a task where they were, where the images were going to be presented either super fast and outside of conscious awareness versus slow enough where they would have some conscious awareness of what they saw. And we had a control condition where they just saw pictures of office objects. People, even when they were presented these images super fast, um, like outside of conscious awareness, could were very accurate in terms of whether they saw a word or a picture. So they were, you know, they were recognizing something. But in that condition, we got no changes of moral conviction as a function of what they were exposed to, whether the mm-hmm. images were related to the attitude object or independent of it. However, when um, the images were presented at Supraliminal That is where people would have the ability to detect what they saw, even though it was still going by really fast. Um, under those conditions, it was only the images of aborted fetuses that moved around um, moral convictions. The subsequent follow-up test to that, we actually uh, compared harm, anger, and disgust. Um, and what those results revealed is that still the changes in moral convictions were unique to being exposed to something that was related to the act we were trying to attack. That's the abortive fetuses. And what mediated that fact was not harm. It was not anger, but only disgust. So this is leading us to believe that, again, that emotions are, are really important and that harm, um, it seems to be much more hit and miss. Mm-hmm. Um, but lest we think that disgust is the only thing that can moralize, other research has found other emotions can moralize as well. For example, we did a longitudinal study in the context of a presidential election. We had already known um, from previous research that over the election cycle, people's attitudes about presidential candidates tend to become stronger moral convictions over the election cycle. So we decided to do a longitudinal investigation to find out what predicted those changes. And we had several possible contenders. We had um, fear, threat, anger. Um, We also measured on perceived harms and benefits of electing um, the different candidates. Changes in um, enthusiasm. I'm sorry, enthusiasm was another one changes in enthusiasm towards um, one's preferred candidate predict increased moralization over repeated you know repeated time points over the election cycle hostility towards one non-preferred candidate increased moral conviction over repeated points in the election cycle changes in harms or benefits um, fears of threat did not okay however changes in moral conviction however did predict changes in perceived harms and benefits of electing candidate as well as emotional changes so the emotions are, emotional reactions are reciprocal. It, stronger emotional reactions lead to stronger moral convictions, which leads to stronger emotional reactions and keeps going. Whereas um, stronger moral convictions um, lead to greater perceptions of harm and benefits, but harm and benefits are not predicting moral conviction.
1: And, and we know this based on like the, the temporal order in which stuff happens, right? So I know that like your emotions today help me anticipate whether this is moral for you tomorrow, exactly. but your harm ideas today don't really give me that prediction. But once you've seen this, once you've started to start, see these candidates uh, in a more moral lens that then anticipates your reactions to your, your perceptions of harm and whatnot. Right. And also those emotions. Right. So we we have some sense of loose sense of causality where we can say, In this sort of, in the time frame these are happening in, your feelings are coming before the changes in moralization. So we sort of get a sense that it's those things that are sort of kickstarting this process.
0: Exactly. The idea that emotion is very strongly connected to moral convictions is absolutely solid. Which emotions is a really interesting question and complicated. Lots of emotions are involved.
1: So it sounds like the the story of w- what emotions are doing in this process has, has changed over time. My, my other question I had for you was, you know, in the span of time you've been studying moral conviction, are there aspects of that process that you've changed your mind about? Like, do you think about moral conviction any differently today than you did when these uh, questions about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court were first flowing through your head?
0: Yeah, I would say yes. I didn't expect, actually, that the, um, the theoretical predictions, the, the things that you would predict would be related to moral conviction were going to line up quite so neatly. Hmm. I was very open-minded. And, um, well, no, I wasn't. I really thought harm was going to be <laughs> way more important. I thought harm was going to be um, as a precursor. Um, and I have been consistently surprised that it, Very inconsistently is. I'm not surprised at, you know, emotions are, you know, intimately involved, but the exactly how emotions are involved is, um, is very interesting. And as a social scientist, um, we know that many times things don't work out in our research, you know, that I've been very, very surprised the moral conviction research about how consistent the findings are. These findings are very easy to replicate. And it's pretty rare that we don't get, get some effects.
1: Yeah, I have certainly found for as simple as this thing is to measure, <laughs> like, like it doesn't take much at all, but it, it, it does. I mean, I've independently, I can attest that just asking people about whether this is something that they've connected to their sense of moral right and wrong is a pretty potent <laughs> probe to get at something that matters to people. um, And that predicts the, the ways in which they engage with this issue, other people changing their own minds, uh reflecting over time on <laughs> the issues that matter to them, uh, huh it is. I have to imagine, right, when you first sat down to write out a couple questions to throw in a survey, you, you might not have anticipated that they would be so generative.
0: <laughs> um, you know, I did think that maybe asking about the moral relevance of an object would be different than its favorability. Hmm. Um, that much I, I was willing to bet on. Um, I still wasn't willing to bet, though, that it was going to be distinguishable from um, the more usual dimensions of attitude strength that, that um, researchers have studied, such as um, centrality, certainty. Um, importance and so on. So the, the finding that it very consistently does seem to be capturing something else, you know, it's certainly related to those constructs, um, but cannot be perfectly explained by them. I think it's really fascinating. And and to be honest with you, that was a surprise.
1: Hmm. Very cool. Well, I just want to say thanks for taking the time to walk us through the world of moral conviction. And uh, it sounds like uh, this program of work isn't over. There, there's more still to come. Plenty. Thanks again. That'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to Linda Skitka for taking the time to talk about moral convictions. Check out the notes for this episode in your podcast app or at opinionsciencepodcast.com for links to some of the things we were talking about, including Linda's website. Thank you to everybody who's already rated and reviewed this podcast online. If you haven't done that yet, it just takes a minute. If you're an Apple podcast user, for example, you can do it like right now, (laughs) right in the thing you're using to listen to this. It helps people find the show and trust it enough to give it a listen, and your support so far has been super great. Okay, let's wrap this up. It is the last week of the semester where I work, and I am about to get buried in things to grade. So I'm going to go take a power nap and then run headfirst into that mess. And I will see you back here in a couple weeks for more opinion science. Bye bye